PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by BioX Systems. BioX Systems produces Exercise Pro Software, the ultimate solution for patient education and home programs, and Fitness Maker Software, helping clinics manage wellness programs. Both are affordable, comprehensive, and easy to use. Visit www.bioxsystems.com. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for January 2010. This month, PTJ introduces a new feature, LEAP, Linking Evidence and Practice, which highlights the findings and application of Cochrane reviews and other evidence pertinent to the practice of physical therapy. An editorial by PTJ editorial board members Dr. Diane Jetty and Dr. Rochelle Bookbender introduces the new feature. The first article in the LEAP series is Pulmonary Rehabilitation Following Acute Exacerbation of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. This month's research reports focus on ultrasound for soft tissue pathology, prognosis in individuals with shoulder pain receiving cervicothoracic manipulation, early measures after unilateral total knee arthroplasty, effects of dorsiflexor muscle functional electrical stimulation on post-stroke gait, strength and stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty in older adults, use of reflection in clinical decision-making, and measuring skill in walking of older adults. This month's case report focuses on hospital-based outpatient direct access to physical therapy services. This month's perspective focuses on hallux valgus and the first metatarsal arch segment. This month also has an article in the CARE 5 conference series, Team Rehabilitation Care After Arthroplasty for Osteoarthritis. First, exposure to low amounts of ultrasound energy does not improve soft tissue shoulder pathology. A systematic review by Lisa Alexander, David Gilman, Derek Brown, Janet Brown, and Dr. Pamela Houghton. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Although therapeutic ultrasound is commonly used to treat shoulder injuries, research to date on the ability of ultrasound to improve outcomes for shoulder pathologies is conflicting. This study aimed to systematically and critically review available literature to ascertain whether beneficial effects of ultrasound were associated with certain shoulder pathologies or particular ultrasound treatment protocols. Five electronic databases were searched, and the included studies, identified through pair consensus, were randomized controlled trials that utilized ultrasound for soft tissue shoulder injury or pain. The eight studies included in this review evaluated various parameters, including the duration of patients' symptoms, 0 to 12 months, duty cycle, 20% and 100%, intensity, 0.1 to 2.0 watts per centimeter squared, treatment time per session, 4.5 minutes to 15.8 minutes, number of treatments, 6 to 39, and total energy applied per treatment, 181 to 8,152 joules. Inconsistent outcome measures among studies precluded meta-analysis. 
However, three randomized controlled trials showed statistically significant benefits of ultrasound, two of which examined calcific tendinitis. Studies showed that beneficial effects of ultrasound typically had four times longer total exposure times and applied much greater ultrasound energy per session compared with studies that showed no benefit of ultrasound. No studies that delivered 720 joules or less per session showed improvement in treatment groups. Current research involving ultrasound treatment protocols that delivered low levels of ultrasound energy do not adequately address whether ultrasound can improve outcomes for shoulder disorders. Determining whether therapeutic ultrasound can affect soft tissue shoulder pathologies will require further research and systematic reviews that involve appropriate ultrasound treatment protocols. A bottom line for this article is available online at ptjournal.apta.org. Lead author Lisa Alexander is a medical student at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Next, some factors predict successful short-term outcomes in individuals with shoulder pain receiving cervicothoracic manipulation, a single-arm trial by Dr. Paul Mintgen, Dr. Joshua Cleland, Dr. Kristen Carpenter, Dr. Melanie Bienick, Dr. Mike Kearns, and Dr. Julie Whitman. It has been reported that manipulative therapy directed at the cervical and thoracic spine may improve outcomes in patients with shoulder pain. To date, limited data are available to help physical therapists determine which patients with shoulder pain may experience changes in pain and disability following the application of these interventions. The purpose of this prospective single-arm trial was to identify prognostic factors from the history and physical examination in individuals with shoulder pain who are likely to experience rapid improvement in pain and disability following cervical and thoracic spine manipulation. This study was conducted in outpatient physical therapy clinics. The participants were individuals who were seen by physical therapists for a primary complaint of shoulder pain. Participants underwent a standardized examination and then a series of thrust and non-thrust manipulations directed toward the cervicothoracic spine. Individuals were classified as having achieved a successful outcome at the second and third sessions based on their perceived recovery. Potential prognostic variables were entered into a stepwise logistic regression model to determine the most accurate set of variables for prediction of treatment success. Data for 80 individuals were included in the data analysis, of which 49 had a successful outcome. Five prognostic variables were retained in the final regression model. If three of the five variables were present, the chance of achieving a successful outcome improved from 61% to 89%. This study had the following limitations. A prospective single-arm trial lacking a control group does not allow for inferences to be made regarding cause and effect. The statistical procedures used may result in overfitting of the model, which can result in low precision of the prediction accuracy, and the bivariate analysis may have resulted in the rejection of some important variables. The identified prognostic variables will allow clinicians to make an a priori identification of individuals with shoulder pain who are likely to experience short-term improvement with cervical and thoracic spine manipulation. Future studies are necessary to validate these findings.
a bottom line for this article, is available online. Lead author Dr. Paul Mintkin is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the School of Medicine, University of Colorado at Denver, in Denver, Colorado, and lead clinician at the Wurdenberg Health Center, University of Colorado at Boulder, in Boulder, Colorado. Next, early postoperative measures predict one- and two-year outcomes after unilateral total knee arthroplasty. Importance of contralateral limb strength. By Dr. Joseph Zenny Jr. and Dr. Lynn Snyder-Mackler. Total knee arthroplasty has been shown to be an effective surgical intervention for people with end-stage knee osteoarthritis. However, recovery of function is variable, and not all people have successful outcomes. The aim of this prospective longitudinal study was to discern which early postoperative functional measures could predict functional ability at one year and two years after surgery. The participants were 155 people who underwent unilateral total knee arthroplasty. Functional evaluations were performed at the initial outpatient physical therapy appointment and at one and two years after surgery. Evaluations consisted of measurements of height, weight, quadriceps muscle strength, and knee range of motion, the timed up-and-go test, the stair-climbing task, and the knee outcome survey questionnaire. The ability to predict one- and two-year outcomes on the basis of early postoperative measures was analyzed with a hierarchical regression. Differences in functional scores were evaluated with a repeated measures analysis of variance. Scores on the timed up-and-go test the stair climbing task and the knee outcome survey at one and two years showed significant improvements over the scores at the initial evaluation. A weaker quadriceps muscle in the limb that did not undergo surgery, the non-operated limb, was related to poorer one and two-year outcomes, even after the influence of the other early postoperative measures was accounted for in the regression. Older participants with higher body masses also had poorer outcomes at one and two years. Postoperative measures were better predictors of times on the timed up-and-go test and the stair-climbing task than scores on the knee outcome survey. Rehabilitation regimens after total knee arthroplasty should include exercises to improve the strength of the non-operated limb as well as to treat the deficits imposed by the surgery. Emphasis on treating age-related impairments and reducing body mass also might improve long-term outcomes. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Joseph Zinni Jr. is research assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Delaware in Newark, Delaware. Novel patterns of functional electrical stimulation have an immediate effect on dorsiflexor muscle function during gait for people post-stroke. By Dr. Trisha Kisar, Dr. Ramu Perumal, Angela Yonkoska, Dr. Darcy Reisman, Dr. Catherine Rudolph, Dr. Jill Higginson, and Dr. Stuart Bender-McLeod. Foot drop is a common gait impairment after stroke. Functional electrical stimulation of the ankle dorsiflexor muscles during the swing phase of gait can help correct foot drop. Compared with constant frequency trains, which typically are used during functional electrical stimulation, 
novel stimulation patterns called variable frequency trains have been shown to enhance isometric and non-isometric muscle performance. However, variable frequency trains have never been used for functional electrical stimulation during gait. The purpose of this study was to compare knee and ankle kinematics during the swing phase of gait when functional electrical stimulation was delivered to the ankle dorsiflexor muscles using variable frequency trains versus constant frequency trains. A repeated measures design was used in this study. The 13 participants were 9 men and 4 women with post-stroke hemiparesis who were between 46 and 72 years of age. The participants completed 20 to 40 second bouts of walking at their self-selected walking speeds. The three walking conditions compared were walking without functional electrical stimulation, walking with functional electrical stimulation of the dorsiflexor muscles using constant frequency trains, and walking with functional electrical stimulation of the dorsiflexor muscles using variable frequency trains. Functional electrical stimulation using both constant frequency trains and variable frequency trains improved ankle dorsiflexion angles during the swing phase of gait compared with walking without functional electrical stimulation. Greater ankle dorsiflexion in the swing phase was generated during walking with functional electrical stimulation using variable frequency trains versus constant frequency trains. Surprisingly, dorsiflexor functional electrical stimulation resulted in reduced knee flexion during the swing phase and reduced ankle plantar flexion at toe-off. The findings suggest that novel functional electrical stimulation systems capable of delivering variable frequency trains during gait can produce enhanced correction of foot drop compared with traditional functional electrical stimulation systems that deliver constant frequency trains. The results also suggest that the timing of the delivery of functional electrical stimulation during gait is critical and merits further investigation. Lead author Dr. Tricia Kisar is postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Delaware in Newark, Delaware. Next, decreased muscle strength relates to self-reported stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty in older adults by Manuel Hernandez, Dr. Alan Goldberg, and Dr. Neil Alexander. Bending down and kneeling are fundamental tasks of daily living, yet nearly a quarter of older adults report having difficulty performing or being unable to perform these movements. Older adults with stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty have demonstrated an increased fall risk. Strength measures may be useful for determining both difficulty in stooping, crouching, or kneeling and fall risk. The purposes of this cross-sectional observational study were 1. to examine muscle strength differences in older adults with and without stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty, and 2. to examine the relative contributions of trunk and leg muscle strength to stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty. The participants were community-dwelling older adults whose mean age was 75.5 years. 27 participants with stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty and 21 participants without difficulty were tested for leg and trunk strength and functional mobility. Isometric strength at the trunk, hip, knee, and ankle also was normalized by body weight and height. Compared with older adults with no stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty, 
those with stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty had significant decreases in normalized trunk extensor, knee extensor, and ankle dorsiflexor and plantar flexor strength. In two separate multivariate analyses, raw ankle plantar flexor strength and normalized knee extensor strength were significantly associated with stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty. Stooping, crouching, and kneeling difficulty also correlated with measures of functional balance and falls. This study had the following limitation. Although the researchers examined muscle groups that were key to rising from stooping, crouching, or kneeling, other muscle groups may contribute to the safe performance of these movements. Decreased muscle strength, particularly when normalized for body size, predicts stooping, crouching, or kneeling difficulty. These data emphasize the importance of strength measurement at multiple levels in predicting self-reported functional impairment. This article will be the subject of a discussion podcast. Lead author Manuel Hernandez is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the Mobility Research Center, University of Michigan, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Next, novice and experienced physical therapist clinicians. A comparison of how reflection is used to inform the clinical decision-making process by Dr. Susan Flannery Wainwright, Dr. Catherine Shepard, Dr. Lorinda Harmon, and Dr. James Stevens. Prior experience informs clinical decision-making and shapes how reflection is used by novice and experienced physical therapist clinicians. The aims of this research were, one, to determine the types and extent of reflection that informs the clinical decision-making process, and two, to compare the use of reflection to direct and assess clinical decisions made by novice and experienced physical therapists. Qualitative research methods using grounded theory were used to gain insight into how physical therapists use reflection to inform clinical decision-making. Three participant pairs were purposively selected from three inpatient rehabilitation settings. Each pair consisted of one novice and one experienced physical therapist. Case summaries of each participant provided the basis for within and across case analysis. Credibility of these results was established through member check of the case summaries, presentation of low inference data, and triangulation across multiple data sources and within and across the participant groups. Although all participants engaged in reflection on action, the experienced participants did so with greater frequency. The experienced participants were distinguished by their use of reflection in action and self-assessment during therapist-patient interactions. An intermediate effect beyond novice practice was observed. The results of this study may be used by educators and employers to develop and structure learning experiences and mentoring opportunities to facilitate clinical decision-making abilities and the development of the skills necessary for reflection in students and novice practitioners. Lead author Dr. Susan Flannery Wainwright is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Next, walking skill can be assessed in older adults. Validity of the figure of eight walk test. By Rebecca Hess, Dr. Jennifer Brock, Dr. Sarah Piva, and Dr. Jesse Van Swearingen. The figure of eight walk test involves straight and curved paths. The test was designed to represent walking skill in everyday life. The purposes of this study were to validate the measure in older adults with walking difficulties, 
and to explore correlates of the curved path walking measure that were not represented by a straight path walking measure. 51 community dwelling older adults with mobility disability participated in two baseline visits as part of an intervention study. The following were recorded in each test session. Figure of 8 walk test time, steps, and smoothness, and measures of gait, physical function, and movement control and planning. Bivariate correlations for the figure of 8 walk test with each variable were conducted to examine concurrent and construct validity. Adjusted linear regression analyses were performed to explore the variance in mobility explained by the figure of 8 walk test independent of gait speed. Figure of 8 walk test time correlated with gait, physical function, confidence in walking, and movement control. Figure of 8 walk test steps correlated with step width variability and was related to fear of falling. All correlations were significant. This pilot study had a small sample size and further research is needed. The figure of 8 walk test is a valid measure of walking skill among older adults with mobility disability and may provide information complementary to gait speed. Lead author Rebecca Hess is a graduate physical therapist student in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This month's case report is Pursuit and Implementation of Hospital-Based Outpatient Direct Access to Physical Therapy Services, an Administrative Case Report, by Dr. William Boysenault, Dr. Mary Beth Badke, and Jane Megan Powers. Despite legislative approval of direct access to physical therapy, other regulatory barriers and internal institutional policies often must be overcome before this practice model can be fully adopted. Few institutional initiatives have been published describing strategies designed to change policies restricting direct patient access. This case report describes steps and strategies associated with successful implementation of a direct access physical therapy model at a large academic medical center. This case report describes the process of obtaining institutional medical board and hospital authority board approval and implementing a pilot program. Program details, including therapist qualifications and scope of practice, required internal training program, and program outcome assessment are provided. The therapist scope of practice includes the ability to refer patients directly to a radiologist for plain film radiography. Early pilot program findings, including challenges faced and subsequent actions, are described in this case report. Physician chart reviewers reviewed patient care decisions by therapists participating in the pilot program. The therapists' decisions were deemed appropriate 100% of the time. Approximately 10% of the patients seen were referred to a radiologist for plain film imaging. Approximately 4% of the patients were referred to physicians for pain medications. 16% of the patients were referred to physicians for medical consultation. The pilot program's success led to institutional adoption of the direct access model in all physical therapy outpatient clinics. Autonomy is described in part as self-determined professional judgment and action. This case report describes such an effort at a large academic medical center. 
The interdependent collaborative relationship among physical therapists, physicians, and hospital administrators has resulted in the implementation of a patient-centered practice model based on the premise of patient choice. Lead author Dr. William Boysenalt is Associate Professor in the Department of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Madison, Wisconsin. This month's perspective article is Hallux Valgus and the First Metatarsal Arch Segment, a Theoretical Biomechanical Perspective by Ward Glassow, Dr. David Nuckley, and Dr. Paula Ludwig. Hallux valgus is a progressive foot deformity characterized by a lateral deviation of the hallux with corresponding medial deviation of the first metatarsal. Late-stage changes may render the hallux painful and without functional utility, leading to impaired gait. Various environmental, genetic, and anatomical predispositions have been suggested, but the exact cause of hallux valgus is unknown. Evidence indicates that conservative intervention for hallux valgus provides relief from symptoms but does not reverse deformity. Part 1 of this perspective article reviews the literature describing the anatomy, pathomechanics, and etiology of hallux valgus. Part 2 expands on the biomechanical initiators of hallux valgus attributed to the first metatarsal. Theory is advanced that collapse of the arch with vertical orientation, or tilt, of the first metatarsal axis initiates deformity. To counteract the progression of hallux valgus, the authors use theory to discuss a possible mechanism by which foot orthoses can bolster the arch and reorient the first metatarsal axis horizontally. Lead author Ward Glasso is instructor in the program in physical therapy at the University of Minnesota Medical School in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Finally, an article from the CARE 5 conference series, What's in Team Rehabilitation Care After Arthroplasty for Osteoarthritis? Results from a multicenter longitudinal study assessing structure, process, and outcome by Dr. Margaret Grotel, Dr. Andrew Garrett, Mari Klokeru, Ida Luchting, Dr. Thiel Ulig, and Dr. Kara Hagen. Clinical course and outcome connected to rehabilitation after hip or knee arthroplasty have been studied extensively, but few studies have assessed the content of team rehabilitation care for these patients. The purpose of this multicenter longitudinal observational study was to provide a thorough description of the structure, process, and outcome of team rehabilitation care for patients with hip or knee arthroplasty for osteoarthritis. 183 patients from six rehabilitation centers in Norway who were undergoing inpatient rehabilitation following hip or knee arthroplasty were included in the study. Structure and process components were recorded by participants and healthcare professionals in a patient diary. Participants also completed questionnaires regarding their experiences during their rehabilitation stay and recorded data for outcome measures at admission, at discharge, and six months after discharge. The main outcome measures were pain intensity and physical function as assessed with the physical function scale of the SF36. Data were complete for 172 participants at discharge and for 148 patients at the six-month follow-up. Healthcare professionals, physical therapists, nurses, and physicians were most often involved in team care. Occupational therapists, social workers, and psychologists were seldom part of the rehabilitation team. Exercises provided by physical therapists were the most common treatment modality, 
Patient education, massage, and manual therapy also were provided frequently. The participants were very satisfied with their care and its organization, information, and communication, and with the availability of healthcare professionals. They were moderately satisfied with the social environment of the rehabilitation setting. The participants had large improvements in the outcome measures during the rehabilitation stay and at the six-month follow-up. This study had the following limitations. For typical physical therapy modalities, such as exercises, electrotherapy, and acupuncture, there are limited descriptions and assessments of treatment doses. Current team rehabilitation care involves a traditional team with physical therapists, nurses, and physicians. Several types of treatment modalities are used, with greatest emphasis on physical training. This detailed description of current team rehabilitation practice might help clinicians and researchers in planning clinical trials within a rehabilitation setting, as well as in improving rehabilitation practice. Lead author Dr. Margaret Grotel is Senior Researcher at the National Resource Center for Rehabilitation in Rheumatology, Diakonhimet Hospital, in Oslo, Norway. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.